Chapter One of On the Irrawaddy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. On the Irrawaddy by G. A. Henty. Chapter One A New Career. A party was assembled in a room of an hotel in Calcutta at the end of the year 1822. It consisted of a gentleman, a lady in deep mourning, a boy of between fourteen and fifteen, and two girls of thirteen and twelve. "'I think you had better accept my offer, Nellie,' the gentleman was saying. "'You will find it hard work enough to make both ends meet with these two girls, and Stanley would be a heavy drain on you. The girls cost nothing but their clothes, but he must go to a decent school, and then there would be the trouble of thinking what to do with him afterwards. If I could have allowed you a couple of hundred a year, it would have been altogether different, but, you see, I am fighting an uphill fight myself, and need every penny that I can scrape together. I am getting on, and I can see well enough that, unless something occurs to upset the whole thing, I shall be doing a big trade, one of these days. But every penny of profit has to go into the business. So, as you know, I cannot help you at present, though by the time the girls grow up I hope I shall be able to do so, and that to a good extent. I feel sure that it would not be a bad thing for Stanley. He will soon get to be useful to me, and in three or four years will be a valuable assistant. Speaking Hindustani as well as he does, he won't be very long in picking up enough of the various dialects in Kathy and Chittagong for our purpose, and by twenty he will have a share of the business, and be on the highway towards making his fortune. It will be infinitely better than anything he is likely to find in England, and he will be doing a man's work at the age when he would still be a schoolboy in England. I have spoken to him about it. Of course, he does not like leaving you, but he says that he should like it a thousand times better than perhaps having to go into some humdrum office in England. Thank you, Tom, Mrs. Brooks said with a sigh. It will be very hard to part with him, terribly hard, but I see that it is by far the best thing for him, and as you say, in a monetary way, it will be a relief to me. I think I can manage very comfortably on the pension in some quiet place at home with the two girls. But Stanley's schooling would be a heavy drain. I might even manage that, for I might earn a little money by painting. But there would be the question of what to do with him when he left school, and without friends or influence it will be hopeless to get him into a good situation. You see, Herbert's parents have both died since he came out here, and though he was distantly related to the Earl of Netherley, he was only a second cousin or something of that kind, and knew nothing about the family, and of course I could not apply to them. "'Certainly not, Nellie,' her brother agreed. "'There is nothing so hateful as posing as a poor relation. "'And that is a connection rather than a relationship. "'Then you will leave the boy in my hands?' "'I am sure that it will be best,' she said with a tremor in her voice. "'And at any rate I shall have the comfort of knowing that he will be well looked after.' Mrs. Brooke was the widow of a captain in one of the native regiments of the East India Company. He had six weeks before this been carried off suddenly by an outbreak of cholera, and she had been waiting at Calcutta in order to see her brother, before sailing for England. She was the daughter of an English clergyman who had died some seventeen years before. Nellie, who was then eighteen, being motherless as well as fatherless, had determined to sail for India. A great friend of hers had married and gone out a year before. Nellie's father was at that time in bad health, and her friend had said to her at parting, "'Now mind, Nellie, I have your promise.' that if you should find yourself alone here you will come out to me in India. I shall be very glad to have you with me, and I don't suppose you will be on my hands very long. 
Pretty girls don't remain single many months in India. So, seeing nothing better to do, Nelly had, shortly after her father's death, sailed for Calcutta. Lieutenant Brooke was also a passenger on board the Ava, and during the long voyage he and Nelly Pearson became engaged, and were married from her friend's house a fortnight after their arrival. Nelly was told that she was a foolish girl, for that she ought to have done better, but she was perfectly happy. The pay and allowances of her husband were sufficient for them to live upon in comfort, and though when the children came there was little to spare, the addition of pay when he gained the rank of captain was ample for their wants. They had been, in fact, a perfectly happy couple. Both had bright and sunny dispositions, and made the best of everything, and she had never had a serious care until he was suddenly taken away from her. Stanley had inherited his parents' disposition, and, as his sisters, coming so soon after him, occupied the greater portion of his mother's care, he was left a good deal to his own devices, and became a general pet in the regiment, and was equally at home in the men's lines and in the officers' bungalows. The native language came as readily to him as English, and by the time he was ten he could talk in their own tongue with the men, from the three or four different districts from which the regiment had been recruited. His father devoted a couple of hours a day to his studies. He did not attempt to teach him Latin, which would, he thought, be altogether useless to him, but did give him a thorough grounding in English and Indian history, and arithmetic, and insisted upon his spending a certain time each day in reading standard English authors. Tom Pearson, who was five years younger than his sister, had come out to India four years after her. He was a lad full of life and energy. As soon as he left school, finding himself the master of a hundred pounds, the last remains of the small sum that his father had left behind him, he took a second-class passage to Calcutta. As soon as he had landed, he went round to the various merchants and offices, and finding that he could not, owing to a want of references, obtain a clerkship, he took a place in the store of a Parsee merchant who dealt in English goods. Here he remained for five years, by which time he had mastered two or three native languages, and had obtained a good knowledge of business. He now determined to start on his own account. He lived hardly, saving up every rupee not needed for actual necessities, and at the end of the five years he had in all a hundred and fifty pounds. He had long before this determined that the best opening for trade was among the tribes on the eastern borders of the British territory and had specially devoted himself to the study of the languages of Cathay and Chittagong. Investing the greater portion of his money in goods suitable for the trade, he embarked at Calcutta in a vessel bound for Chittagong. There he took passage in a native craft going up the great river to Silhet, where he established his headquarters, and thence, leaving the greater portion of his goods in the care of a native merchant with whom his late employer had had dealings, started with a native and four donkeys, on which his goods were packed, to trade among the wild tribes. His success fully equaled his anticipations, and gradually he extended his operations, going as far east as Manipur, and south almost as far as Chittagong. The firm in Calcutta, from whom he had in the first place purchased his goods, sent him up fresh stores as he required them, and soon seeing the energy with which he was pushing his business, gave him considerable credit and he was able to carry on his operations on an increasingly large scale. Silhet remained his headquarters, but he had a branch at Chittagong, whither goods could be sent direct from Calcutta, and from this he drew his supplies for his trade in that province. Much of his business was carried on by means of the waterways, and the very numerous streams that covered the whole country, and enabled him to carry his goods at a far cheaper rate than he could transport them by land. And for this purpose he had a boat specially fitted up, 
with a comfortable cabin. He determined from the first to sell none but the best goods in the market, and thus he speedily gained the confidence of the natives, and the arrival of his boats was eagerly hailed by the villagers on the banks of the rivers. He soon found that money was scarce, and that, to do a good business, he must take native products in barter for his goods, and that in this way he not only did a much larger trade, but obtained a very much better price for his wares than if he had sold only for money, and he soon consigned considerable quantities to the firm in Calcutta, and by so doing obtained a profit both ways. He himself paid a visit to Calcutta every six months or so, to choose fresh fashions of goods, and to visit the firm with whom his dealings every year became more extensive. But though laying the foundations for an extensive business, he was not, as he told his sister at present, in a position to help her, for his increasing trade continually demanded more and more capital, and the whole of his profits were swallowed up by the larger stocks that had to be held at his depots in Silhet, Chittagong, and at the mouths of the larger rivers. Twice since he had been out he had met his sister at Calcutta, and when she came down after her husband's death, and heard from Tom's agents that he would probably arrive there in the course of a fortnight, she decided to wait there and meet him. He was greatly grieved at her loss, and especially so as he was unable to offer her home, for as his whole time was spent in travelling, it was impossible for him to do so. Nor, indeed, would she have accepted it. Now that her husband was gone, she yearned to be back in England again. It was too far better for the girls that she should take them home. But when he now offered to take the boy, she felt that, hard as it would be to leave Stanley behind, the offer was a most advantageous one for him. The boy's knowledge of Indian languages, which would be of immense advantage to him in such a life, would be absolutely useless in England, and from what Tom told her of his business, there could be little doubt that the prospects were excellent. Stanley himself, who now saw his uncle for the first time, was attracted to him by the energy and cheeriness of manner that had rendered him so successful in business, and he was stirred by the enterprise and adventure of the life he proposed for him. More than once in the little frequented rivers that stretched into Cathay, his boats had been attacked by wild tribesmen, and he had to fight hard to keep them off. Petty chiefs had at times endeavoured to obstruct his trading, and when at Manipur he had twice been witness of desperate fights between rival claimants for the throne. All this was to a boy brought up among soldiers irresistibly fascinating, especially as the alternative seemed to be a seat in a dull counting-house in England. He was then delighted when his mother gave her consent to his remaining with his uncle, grieved as he was at being parted from her and his sisters. The thought that he should in time be able to be of assistance to her was a pleasant one, and aided him to support the pain of parting when, a week later, she sailed with the girls for England. "'I suppose you've not done any shooting, Stanley?' his uncle asked. "'Not with a gun, but I have practiced sometimes with pistols. Father thought it would be useful.' "'Very useful, and you must learn to shoot well with them, and with fowling piece and rifle. What with river thieves and dacoits and wild tribes, to say nothing of wild beasts. A man who travels about as I do wants to be able to shoot straight. The straighter you shoot, the less likely you are to have to do so. I've come to be a good shot myself.' and whenever we row up a river I constantly practice, either at floating objects in the water or at birds or other marks in the trees. I have the best weapons that money can buy. It's my one extravagance, and the result is that, to my boatmen and the men about me, my shooting seems to be marvellous. They tell others of it, and the result is that I am regarded with great respect. I have no doubt whatever that it has saved me from much trouble, 
for the natives have almost got to believe that I only have to point my gun, and the man I wish to kill falls dead, however far distant. Two days after the departure of Mrs. Brooke, her brother and Stanley started down the Hoogley in a trader. "'She's a curious-looking craft, Uncle.' "'Yes, she would not be called handsome in home waters. But she is uncommonly fast, and I find her much more convenient in many ways than a British merchantman. Is she yours, uncle? No, she is not mine, and I do not exactly charter her, but she works principally for me. You see, the wages are so low that they can work a craft like this for next to nothing. Why, the captain and his eight men together don't get higher pay than the boatswain of an English trader. The captain owns the vessel. He's quite content if he gets a few rupees a month in addition to what he considers his own rate of pay. His wife and his two children live on board. If the craft can earn twenty rupees a week, he considers that he's doing splendidly. At the outside, he would not pay his men more than four rupees a month each, and I suppose that he would put down his services at eight, so that would leave him forty rupees a month as the profit earned by the ship. In point of fact, I keep him going pretty steadily. He makes trips backwards and forwards between the different depots, carries me up the rivers for a considerable distance, does a little trade on his own account, not in goods such as I sell, you know, but purely native stores, takes a little freight when he can get it, and generally a few native passengers. I pay him fifteen rupees a week, and I suppose he earns from five to ten in addition, so that the arrangement suits us both admirably. I keep the stern cabin for myself. As you see, she has four little brass guns, which I picked up for a song at Calcutta, and there are twenty-four muskets aft. It's an arrangement that the crew are to practice shooting once a week, so they have all come to be pretty fair shots, and the captain himself can send a two-pound shot from those little guns uncommonly straight. You'll be amused when you see us practicing for action. The captain's wife and the two boys load the guns, and do it very quickly, too. He runs around from gun to gun, takes aim, and fires. The crew shout and yell and bang away with their muskets. I take the command and give a few pice among them, if the firing has been accurate. We've been attacked once or twice in the upper waters, but have always managed to beat the robbers off without much difficulty. The captain fires away till they get pretty close, and I pepper them with my rifles. I have three of them. When they get within fifty yards, the crew open fire, and as they have three muskets each, they can make it very hot for the pirates. I have a store of hand-grenades, and if they push on, I throw two or three on board when they get within ten yards, and that has always finished the matter. They don't understand the things bursting in the middle of them. I don't mean to say that my armament would be of much use if we were trading along the coast of the Malay Peninsula or among the islands, but it's quite enough to deal with the petty robbers of these rivers. But I thought that you had a boat that you went up the rivers in, Uncle. Oh, yes, we tow a rowboat and a store-boat up, behind this craft, as far as she can go. That is, as long as she has wind enough to make against the sluggish stream. When she can go no farther, I take to the rowboat. It has eight rowers, carries a gun, it's a twelve-pounder howitzer, that I have had cut short, so that it's only about a foot long. Of course it won't carry far, but that's not necessary. Its charge is a pound of powder and a ten-pound bag of bullets and at a couple of hundred yards the balls scatter enough to sweep two or three canoes coming abreast, and as we can charge and fire the little thing three times in a minute, it's all that we require for practical purposes. It's only on a few of the rivers we go up that there is any fear of trouble. On the river from Silhet to the east and its branches in Cathy, or as it is sometimes called, Cassie, 
the country is comparatively settled. The Gumti beyond the Udipur is well enough, until it gets into the Kayan, which is what they call independent, that is to say it owns no authority, and some villages are peaceful and well disposed while others are savage. The same may be said of the Munu and the Feni rivers. For the last two years I have done a good deal of trading in Assam, up the Brahmaputra River. As far as Rungpur there are a great many villages on the banks, and the people are quiet and peaceable. Then you don't go further south than Chittagong, uncle? No, the Burmese hold Arakan on the south, and indeed for some distance north of it. There is no very clearly defined border. You see, the great river runs from Rangoon very nearly due north, though with a little east in it, and extends along at the back of the districts I trade with, so that the Burmese are not very far from Manipur, which indeed stands on a branch of the Irrawaddy, of which another branch runs nearly up to Rungpur. We shall have big trouble with them one of these days. Indeed, we have had troubles already. You see, the Burmese are a great and increasing power, and have so easily conquered all their neighbors that they regard themselves as invincible. Until the beginning of the eighteenth century the Burmese were masters of Pegu. Then the people of that country, with the help of the Dutch and Portuguese, threw off their yoke. But the Burmese were not long kept down, for in 1753 Alumpra, a hunter, gathered a force round him, and after keeping up an irregular warfare for some time, was joined by so many of his countrymen that he attacked and captured Ava, conquered the whole of Pegu, and in 1759 the English trading colony at Negres were massacred. This, however, was not the act of Alumpra, but of the treachery of a Frenchman named Levine, and of an Armenian, who incited the Burmese of the district to exterminate the English, hoping, no doubt, thus to retrieve in a new quarter the fortunes of France, which in India were being extinguished by the genius of Clive. The English were at that time far too occupied with the desperate struggle they were having in India to attempt to revenge the massacre of their countrymen at Negre. Very rapidly the Burman power spread. They captured the valuable Tenasserim coast from Siam, repulsed a formidable invasion from China, and annexed Arakan, and dominated Manipur, and thus became masters of the whole tract of country lying between China and Hindustan. As they now bordered upon our territory, a mission was sent in 1794 to them from India, with a proposal for the settlement of boundaries, and for the arrangement of trade between the two countries. Nothing came of it, for the Burmese had already proposed to themselves the conquest of India, and considered the mission as a proof of the terror that their advance had inspired among us. After the conquest by them of Arakan in 1784, there had been a constant irritation felt against us by the Burmese, owing to the fact that a great number of fugitives from that country had taken refuge in the swamps and islands of Chittagong, from which they, from time to time, issued and made raids against the Burmese. In 1811 these fugitives, in alliance with some predatory chiefs, invaded Arakan in force, and, being joined by the subject population there, expelled the Burmese. These, however, soon reconquered the province. The affair was nevertheless unfortunate, since the Burmese naturally considered that, as the insurrection had begun with an invasion by the fugitives in Chittagong, it had been fomented by us. This was in no way the fact. We had no force there capable of keeping the masses of fugitives in order, but we did our best and arrested many of the leaders when they returned after their defeat. This, however, was far from satisfying the Burmese. A mission was sent to Ava to assure them of our friendly intentions, and that we had had nothing whatever to do with the invasion, 
and would do all we could to prevent its recurrence. The Burmese government declined to receive the mission. We ourselves had much trouble with the insurgents, for, fearful of re-entering Burma after their defeat, they now carried on a series of raids in our territory, and it was not until 1816 that these were finally suppressed. Nevertheless, the court of Ava remained dissatisfied, and a fresh demand was raised for the surrender of the chiefs who had been captured, and of the whole of the fugitives living in the government of Chittagong. The Marquis of Hastings replied that the British government could not, without a violation of the principles of justice, deliver up those who had sought its protection, that tranquillity now existed, and there was no probability of a renewal of the disturbances, but that the greatest vigilance should be used to prevent and punish the authors of any raid that might be attempted against Arakan. A year later a second letter was received, demanding on the part of the king the cession of Ramu, Chittagong, Murshidabad, and Dhaka, that is to say, of the whole British possessions east of the Ganges. Lord Hastings simply replied that, if it was possible to suppose that the demand had been dictated by the king of Ava, the British government would be justified in regarding it as a declaration of war. To this the Burmese made no reply. Doubtless they had heard of the successes we had gained in central India, and had learned that our whole force was now disposable against them. Three years ago the old king died, and a more warlike monarch succeeded him. Since 1810 they have been mixed up in the troubles that have been going on in Assam, where a civil war had been raging. One party or other had sought their assistance, and fighting has been going on there nearly incessantly, and two months ago the Burmese settled the question by themselves, taking possession of the whole country. This has, of course, been a serious blow to me. Although disorder has reigned, it has not interfered with my trading along the banks of the river. But now that the Burmese have set up their authority, I shall, for a time anyhow, be obliged to give up my operations there, for they have evinced considerable hostility to us, have made raids near Rungpur on our side of the river, and have pulled down a British flag on an island in the Brahmaputra. We have taken in consequence the principality of Chakar under our protection. Indeed, its two princes, seeing that the Burmese were beginning to invade their country, invited us to take this step, and we thus occupy the passes from Manipur into the low country of Selhet. I wonder that you have been able to trade in Manipur, uncle, as the Burmese have been masters there. No, I am not trading with the capital itself, and the Burmese have been too occupied with their affairs in Assam to exercise much authority in the country. Besides, you see, there has not been war between the two countries. Our merchants at Rangoon still carry on their trade up the Irrawaddy, and in Assam, this spring, the only trouble I had was that I had to pay somewhat higher tolls than I had done before. However, now that the Chakar is under our protection, I hope that I shall make up for my loss of trade in Assam by doing better than before in that province. I thought you called it Cathy, uncle. Yes, so it is generally named, but as it is spoken as Kachar in the proclamation assuming the protectorate, I suppose it will be called so in the future. But all these names out here are spelt pretty much according to fancy. While this conversation had been going on, the boat had been running fast down the river, passing several European vessels almost as if they had been standing still. "'I should not have thought that a boat like this would pass these large ships,' Stanley said. "'We have a good deal to learn in the art of sailing yet,' his uncle replied. "'A great many of these Indian dows can run away from a square-rigged ship in light weather. I don't know whether it's the lines of their hulls or the cut of their sails, 
but there is no doubt about their speed. They seem to skim over the water, while our bluff-bowed craft shove their way through it. I suppose some day we shall adopt these long, sharp bows. When we do, it will make a wonderful difference in our rate of sailing. Then, too, these craft have a very light draft of water, but on the other hand they have a deep keel which helps them to lie close to the wind, and that long, overhanging bow renders them capital craft in heavy weather, for as they meet the sea they rise over it gradually, instead of its hitting them full on the bow as it does our ships. We have much to learn yet in the way of shipbuilding. The trader had his own servant with him, and the man now came up and said that a meal was ready, and they at once entered the cabin. It was roomy and comfortable, and was, like the rest of the boat, a varnished teak. There were large windows in the stern, it had a table with two fixed benches, and there were broad, low sofas on each side. Above these the muskets were disposed in racks, while at the end by the door were Tom Pearson's own rifles, four brace of pistols, and a couple of swords. Ten long spears were suspended from the roof of the cabin in leather slings. The floor, like the rest of the cabin, was varnished. "'It looks very comfortable, Uncle.' "'Yes, you see, I live quite half my time on board, the rest being spent in the boat. My man's a capital cook, he comes from Chittagong, and is a mug.' "'What are mugs, Uncle?' "'Well, they're the original inhabitants of Arakan. He was one of those who remained there, after the Burmese had conquered it, and speaks their language as well as his own. I recommend you to begin with him at once. If things settle down in Assam, it will be very useful for you in arranging with the Burmese officials. You won't find it very easy, though of course your knowledge of three or four Indian tongues will help you. It's said to be a mixture of old Tali, Sanskrit, Tartar, and Chinese. The Tartar and Chinese words will of course be quite new to you. The other two elements will resemble those that you are familiar with. I talked to the man in Hindustani. He picked up a little of it at Chittagong, and has learned a good deal more. During the two years that he's been with me, and through that you will be able to learn the Burmese. A week later the Dow entered the harbor. Stanley had passed most of his time in conversation with Ken, Tom's servant. The facility his tongue had acquired in the Indian languages was of great benefit to him, and he speedily picked up a good many Burmese sentences. For the next six months he continued with his uncle the work the latter had carried on, and enjoyed it much. They sailed up the sluggish rivers with their low, flat shores in the Dow, towing the rowboat and the storeboat behind them. The crews of these boats lived on board the Dow until their services were acquired, helping in its navigation and aiding the crew when the wind dropped and sweeps were got out. The villages along the banks were for the most part small, but were very numerous. At each of these the Dow brought up, there was in almost all cases sufficient water to allow of her being moored alongside the banks, and then as soon as she did so, the natives came on board to make their purchases and dispose of their produce. In addition to the European and Indian goods carried, the Dow was laden with rice, for which there was a considerable demand at most of the villages. As soon as he had learned the price of the various goods and their equivalent in the products of the country, Stanley did much of the bartering while his uncle went ashore and talked with the headmen of the village, with all of whom he made a point of keeping on good terms, and so securing a good portion of the trade that might otherwise have been carried by native craft. Three times during the six months that the Dow had gone back to Calcutta to fetch fresh supplies of goods and to take in another cargo of rice, while the trader proceeded higher up the river in his own boats. While on the voyage, Stanley always had the rifle and fowling piece that his uncle had handed over for his special use, leaning against the bulwark close at hand, 
and frequently shot waterfowl which were so abundant that he was able to keep not only their own table supplied but to furnish the crew and boatmen with a considerable quantity of food they had had no trouble with river pirates for these had suffered so heavily in previous attacks upon the dhow that they shunned any repetition of their loss at the same time every precaution was taken for owing to the intestine troubles in chakar and assam fugitives belonging to the party that happened for the time to be worsted were driven to take refuge in the jungles near the rivers and to subsist largely on plunder the local authorities being too feeble to root them out the boats therefore were always anchored in the middle of the stream at night and two men were kept on watch to the south as well as in the north the trading operations were more restricted for the burmese became more and more aggressive elephant hunters in the hills that formed the boundary of the british territory to the east were seized and carried off twenty-three in one place being captured six in another all being ill-treated and imprisoned and the remonstrances of the indian government treated with contempt by the rajah of arakan it was evident that the object of the burmese was to possess themselves of this hill country in order that they might if they chose pour down at any time into the cultivated country round the town of ramu there is no doubt stanley said his uncle one day we shall very shortly have a big war with the burmese the fact that these constant acts of aggression are met only by remonstrances on our part increases their arrogance and they are convinced that we are in mortal terror of them they say that in assam their leaders are openly boasting that ere long they will drive us completely from india and one of their generals has confidently declared that after taking india they intend to conquer england with such ignorant people there is but one argument understood namely force and sooner or later we shall have to give them such a hearty thrashing that they will be quiet for some time still i grant that the difficulties are great their country is a tremendous size the beggars are brave and the climate at any rate near the sea-coast is horribly unhealthy altogether it will be a big job but it will have to be done or in a very short time we shall see them marching against calcutta End of chapter 1 A New Career Recording by Mike Harris